Hi all, this is the last podcast for the changing economic world. We are in paper two and this is the section B still of that set of that paper. We're going to be looking at the economic features in the UK and for this we're going to be looking at a number of little case examples in the UK and the UK as a whole. So the first thing you need to be aware of is actually the UK economic structure and we're going to be looking at the causes of the change of this but you need to know about the changes first of all to be able to see the impact that's occurring. So firstly if we go back to around 1841 it's as far back as we relatively need to go for this course and look at the census data we can see that for both tertiary and manufacturing industries the UK had roughly about a third of people working in those areas and then just over 20% of people working in the primary sector. So the three major sectors of the UK. If we fast forward now to 2011, there's now 80% of people working in tertiary. So four out of every five people work in some type of service, be that healthcare, education, retail, while now we have about 1% in primary roughly 10% in secondary and the new quaternary industry has started to take over and that's at about 12 or 13%. So clearly there's been quite a significant change since 1841 and 2011 and the census data shows us that. It's important to remember this change hasn't been seen all over the country though and, and there's examples that show that it's not always consistent in places like Corby manufacturing is at over 23 percent still in parts of Wales we have primary up, up over 10 percent so even though the average is 80 percent of people work in tertiary that's not consistent for the entirety of the UK and it's always important to bear that in mind. Now the specification puts deindustrialization next before globalization, but I think sometimes we have to think about both hand in hand. So I'm going to start with the idea of globalization, and this is the idea of a more interconnected world, a world where we can move goods better than ever before, people can travel more than ever before, information can in a blink of an eye pass around the world. So clearly in this interconnected world, things have changed and we see massive positives to this. There's been economic growth in the UK, cheaper goods like the things you might expect to buy from Primark and all those types of shops. We've seen investment from other countries being spent in the UK and actually even though there's some contentious issues over migration, we've generally seen migration filling in the jobs that we need in specialised roles. This obviously has brought some consequences and some negative impacts and one of the biggest ones being the outsourcing jobs and therefore the loss of manufacturing. And what I mean by this is that nowadays it's cheaper for factories to run in places like in East Asia where actually the labour costs are very cheap as there's no minimum wage and there might be limited health and safety rules and environmental rules that just make it far more expensive for these types of factories in the UK. And the reason I think this goes hand in hand with deindustrialization is dangerous deindustrialization is the complete and utter loss of the manufacturing industry. Now, if you've obviously listened to the last percentage I gave, the manufacturing industry has gone from somewhere in the region of 36% down to 11%. So we're clearly losing our industry. And this has gone alongside globalization because actually the industry is moving east and it's moving to Asia and that's one of the major causes. We don't have to look any further for the real kind of good example of deindustrialization and the coal mining industry and the industries that were all interdependent on that and, and alongside it. 
So I'm going to look at an example in just a moment of uh, North East England to understand deindustrialization, the actual loss of the, what it had in the local area, and then the policies of how we can hopefully try and overcome these problems. Now I just used the word interdependent, uh, which is a really good term to describe how the industries related to each other in North East England in places like Newcastle and Sunderland. So since World War II, coal mining as a whole was on the decline. There was nowhere near as much need for coal in general. But there were a number of other industries that used coal that have also started to shut down and therefore also meant that the need for coal was also falling. So if we look at the idea of shipbuilding, well, shipbuilding used to take place in shipyards a lot in Newcastle and Sunderland, but actually they've now all closed down. Um, unfortunately, that's because they've moved to South Korea and China. As I said, with that process of globalization, the ships can be manufactured there and sailed across to where they're needed. Now, next to and around the shipbuilding industry, we had the iron and steel works. Now, iron and steel use coal in their manufacturing process, which is why all these industries are located in a very close proximity to each other. So when the shipbuilding industry moved away and shut down, the iron and steel industry no longer was needed. The iron and steel that was used to build the ships wasn't there so therefore they also started to close down or thereby reducing the demand for coal. Now the final industry that shows interdependence is not linked to shipbuilding or iron and steel at all it's the chemical industry but because the coal mining started to shut down and eventually did completely shut down the chemical industry which was also located in the area and used the coal actually had costs go up because they could no longer get coal locally and cheaply as they were before. So a completely separate industry was affected by globalization and deindustrialization. And that's a major impact of this interdependence that we've saw with manufacturing an industry in the northeast of England. Now this can have some severe impacts. So Easington Colliery in, in northeast England actually had around a thousand people uh, unemployed when the last mines closed down. Now, unfortunately, due to the lack of education in these people, the lack of transferable skills, even 20 years later, the town had not recovered. Um, so this deindustrialization causes some serious problems. So with this in mind, the government has tried to respond to deindustrialization. There's three major things it can do, and that is invest in new infrastructure, so roads in industrial states to provide more jobs, encourage foreign investment, so trying to get particularly Japanese car companies is a big one like Nissan to try and provide jobs to the people that have lost them. And one of the major things in starting in 1999 and then replaced in 2012 was a development or enterprise partnership which focused on getting these people better and more skills to allow them to get other jobs. The UK economy would now be described as a post-industrial economy. So this is where we've moved on from manufacturing industry and we've replaced those jobs with either service industry, so the tertiary jobs, or that new rising industry, the quaternary ones, which is focusing on technology, biotechnology, and new creative industries. And this has seen massive growth in the UK. Now, the specification wants you to know about the development, development of this information technology and then looking at things called science and business parks. So I'm going to be first of all looking at where the major economic growths are found. And in the UK, we focus on a lot of cities 
and the, the routes that connect them. We're calling them growth corridors. And these follow major transport routes, and this is where some of the biggest growth is taking place. The best example is the M4 corridor in London. So this is a motorway that connects Bristol to London, and it's got several key features that made it very attractive to high-tech industries over the past 30 years. So we've had companies like Microsoft, Sony, and Vodafone all based there. So firstly, it was relatively close to Oxford University, so provided highly educated workforce uh, with expertise in research. It had cheaper land prices than London, which meant that startups could afford it or big businesses could afford more land and therefore bigger premises. The, the route itself is a major route for both, obviously, cars on the motorway, but also rail links. And it's very close to Heathrow Airport, the largest in the UK. So it connected it to all parts of the world. However, what we've seen recently is a number of those big businesses, such as Vodafone, moving back to London. And this is a very good evaluation in your exam of these types of areas, because actually most young people prefer an urban area than the rural areas. The actual, this idea that the businesses that we're getting nowadays require far less space than the business in the past. Cotonia industry needs a computer and an area to work. It doesn't need these big factories and warehouses like old industry did. So we've seen the M4 corridor have its success and its rise, but then also it has started to decline. That's still said roughly 8% of the UK's economic output comes out this motorway or this M4 corridor and that's as much as Birmingham and Manchester combined. Alongside the growth we've seen in places like the M4 corridor, uh, the best example of a science park to use is a part of Cambridge um, where they've actually built a science park and it's been known as a high-tech hub which is the, the term we're going to use to describe this. Now, in the 1970s, they built this science park in association with Cambridge University. So again, we can start to see some similarities and some parallels to the M4 corridor. The M4 corridor has got Oxford University, Cambridge, Cambridge University, so highly educated students. Again, like the M4 corridor, Cambridge is served by a motorway, this time the M11, and it's not so near to Heathrow, but it is quite near to Stansted Airport, so it's got good transport links again. Um, one of the major things in the Science Park is they've actually focused on a lot of biotech companies, and one of the most prominent or successful ones is Abcam, named Antibiotics Cambridge. Um, it's now worth a billion pounds and employs over 200 staff. Um, it's actually got over 200 staff with PhD degrees. That's more than some universities. So we're clearly talking about a, a real kind of hub for these new industries of the Caternia industry we're talking about. This has had an impact on Cambridge though and while it has provided jobs and improved the economic output of the area it has driven up house prices and caused problems for local people um, such as overcrowding, more congestion and being unable to afford property in the area. So for both Bristol and Cambridge you've got two examples there that can be evaluated, that can be used to show how the economy of the UK has changed and most people would say improved but it's also brought some negatives as well. The specification now asks for an example of how modern industrial development can be made more environmentally sustainable. So we're going to be looking at the fact of well, obviously coal mining was completely unsustainable. Our business and science parks are quite sustainable nowadays. Um, so somewhere in the middle of that, we've got the car manufacturing industry of the UK. 
and there's been great efforts over recent years to try and make it more sustainable. Um, this is a reasonably big business for the UK. More than 1.5 million cars are made in the UK every year, and there's seven kind of major manufacturing plants, um, all of which are owned by foreign TNCs that we've brought up in other courses, uh, the transnational co companies or corporations. And it's very important that we've realized the problems with the car manufacturing. So the fuel consumption of the car in use itself, the manufacturing process uses a lot of energy. It requires a lot of resources. There's obviously a lot of air pollution involved and the actual disposal of the car itself. So in recent years, what we've seen is a big focus on the car industry from becoming more sustainable, reducing the amount of energy used in the car by re actually recycling parts of old cars for new vehicles. And in terms of waste to landfill per car, it's gone from 40, over 40 kilograms per car going to waste back in 1999 to only three and a half kilograms going to waste in 2013. So there's been some really impressive work done on this. However, what you could talk about as one of the major changes is the use of hybrid cars or electric vehicles. Obviously, this massively reduces not only the air pollution, but also the fuel consumption and a lot of the negative problems with the use of the car itself. One of the best examples for uh, the manufacturing process improving takes place at Nissan. And Nissan now actually have the Nissan Leaf car, which is their electric car, but they've also put solar panels and wind turbines onto their roofs to actually create enough energy to produce a number of their vehicles without using coal-fired electricity plants. So we clearly see that this industry is taking great steps to try and make itself more sustainable, but obviously there is still work to do. If we look at CO2 emissions per uh, kilometre, we've gone from 185 in 1999 only to 128 in 2013. There's clearly some work to do with the amount of CO2 being released from vehicles. We now need to move on to look at social and economic changes in the rural areas of the UK. Now, what we talk about urban areas a lot in geography as a whole, and especially in this course, 19% of people still live, live in the rural areas of the UK. And this number is actually growing. Uh, there's a process called counter-urbanisation, and this is the increased proportion of people moving back to the countryside, choosing to leave cities and move back out. And there's a number of reasons for that, such as better quality of life, more green space, um, avoiding kind of the hustle and bustle of cities. Um, so we clearly do have this changing percentage amount of people living in rural areas. And this has caused some massive changes to take place. In terms of the environment, we need to be thinking about protecting this green space. And that's why a lot of the UK around major cities is designated as the green belt. So this is green open space in which further building development is not allowed. So it tries to limit the urban spread of, of an area. And this can actually have some negative consequences because while it protects the environment, it reduces the amount of houses that can be built and socially and economically makes it more expensive for people to live in these areas. I mean, people sometimes have to be pushed out of an area they've grown up in. Now, you need to know for the course what's happening in an area of population growth. So areas of population growth have some positives. It actually means that there could be survival of businesses or schools or anything like that that would have shut down without enough customers or students they now get to stay open. That keeps jobs in the area, means people can still obviously keep earning a wage. However, with 
the increased number of people moving to these areas, we are seeing that it's pushing up the house prices even further. The arrival of newcomers is changing the, the culture of the area and it can actually bring what we might call conflict to an area. However, if an area is in population decline, which is the other example you need to be aware of, you might start to see that services are shut down and actually, eventually, all people leave the area. So it's really important that rural areas keep a healthy balance of people living in them, not too much and not too little, and that way we can avoid conflict and avoid them shutting down completely. As we can see so far, there's been lots of little bits you need to know about the UK. And the next part of the spec asks us to look at the improvements to transport links and then the north-south divide and the strategies to attempt to resolve it. Now, again, I'm going to flip that around. I want to look at the north-south divide first, briefly explain what it is, and then start to unlock some of the strategies because actually the transport improvements themselves can be used to reduce the north-south divide. So in terms of the north-south divide, it's a line that roughly travels from the Bristol Channel um, in the southwest and goes up to the, the Humber Estuary in the northeast. And with that, it essentially splits the country in, into two and talks about the north being kind of poorer, high unemployment, cheaper house prices, more mountainous area, and south of that line being flat, fertile farmland, high employment, um, high house prices, all of these types of ideas. Now there are exceptions to the rules, there's certainly parts of London in the south that are deprived and certainly parts in the north that are more successful. So it's not a, as clear cut as literally just drawing a line and saying rich and poor. And there have definitely been some strategies to try and reduce this. So there's been extra grants through assisted areas so to provide money for new businesses. There's been the improved transport links I'm going to look at in a few moments time and actually giving power to individual cities to spend money on what they like. And that we've seen that a lot with the new mayors and being able to vote in a mayor for a certain city to try and improve it. So this north-south divide is a very serious issue for the UK and how much money the south makes compared to the north is quite significant. But we're going to look at, as I said, how the transport can have an impact on that. So the first major transport improvement would actually be high-speed rail. Now, High Speed Rail 2 is the one that's looking to go from London, connecting to Birmingham and then on to Manchester and Leeds. Currently, High Speed Rail 1 goes from London and is the one that goes under the channel and allows us to get to uh, Paris or Brussels. Now, this rail network obviously runs at a faster speed than the current rail network and there's lots of reasons that this would be useful. It will take the pressure off our current roads and rail links it will definitely reduce the times between these cities the time from uh, london to birmingham would go down from one hour 24 to just 49 minutes so it really will bring that time down and actually one of the key reasons that they're doing this is that the hope that it will help to fix some of the problems that deindustrialization caused in the north when these independent industry shut down and we had this north-south divide really created and established so hs2 is not planning to start running until 2026 so you can't talk about the exam as already being there but you can certainly talk about it in terms of the what it's hoping to do now 
what supporters are saying is that actually it will generate around forty billion pounds for the UK economy. It's going to create jobs in the north of the country, increase the amount of passengers that can travel, and reduce the number of people that can fly, uh, that fly between different cities. However, if you're objecting to it, you do mainly want to focus on the extortionate cost. It is going to cost roughly forty-two billion pounds. And it really is difficult to know it's going to generate that 40 billion back. Um, estimations are quite difficult there. Um, a lot of people think it won't help the north-south divide as much as people say, because actually it would just mean people want to get jobs in London. And obviously that doesn't particularly help so much. And actually, even though we talk about stopping people flying and the environmental problems of that, it will increase carbon emissions because high-speed trains use more power. So... Even though all the major UK parties agree to it, Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool are, or Leeds are very, very happy about it. You've got a lot of people that are objecting to it and think that it's not something that we need in the UK. From there, we've also seen um, the in transport improvements, over 100 new road schemes to be built by 2020, 100 miles of new lanes and smart motorway investment. Um, we've then seen and further investment in our ports and airports, which is what I'm going to look about in just a moment. So firstly, if we're going to look at airports and keep relating things back to the north-south divide, out of the 10 largest airports in the UK, four of them are London-based, Heathrow, Gatwick, Stansted and Luton in that order. Um, it's actually only the third place that goes to Manchester that stops it being the top four being London. So clearly there's a north-south divide in terms of airport. And when you actually start to look at the numbers, London Heathrow in 2013 had 73 million passengers pass through it, whereas Manchester only had 21, almost 22. So it's still over three times more than Manchester had. So clearly there's a disparity from where people are flying. And this has been very important in terms of the north-south divide of looking at uh, providing an additional runway to an airport in the UK. Now there was debate about whether it would go to Manchester or to London Heathrow and actually last year on the exam day for the paper two it was decided that it would be extending Heathrow Airport. Now this is an 18.6 billion pound cost infrastructure to actually do this and they're saying that it obviously while it will increase the economy of the UK, allow more people to travel to the UK, because Heathrow was at capacity, this isn't really going to be helping the north-south divide. If we then look at ports, in terms of ports, again, obviously this time it's a little bit different because we would expect more ports to be kind of in the east and southeast, nearer to Europe, as that's where the majority of trade by sea is going to come. But again, a lot are located around London. There's even a new port opened in 2013, which is called London Gateway in the Thames Estuary. And this will allow ships carrying up to 18,000 containers. So this is a huge shipping industry. And again, it makes sense that this is located near London, obviously with one of the largest population centres, and the highest amounts of income available there and it will really shorten distribution um, and kind of journey time from actually getting these items off the ships and getting them to the places they're going to be sold. So when we're looking at transport of ports and airports generally they're there predominantly to serve London and therefore increases the wealth of the south. There's been some efforts to try and focus a bit more on the north but 
but not so much and therefore they're a limiting factor there. So the final part of the course is to look at the place of the UK in the wider world. So we need to look a little bit historically. So we start off with the idea of the British Empire. So it covered about one third the world's land. So we were very well known around the world and we spread ideas and culture all around the world. And today that's envisioned in the idea of being part of the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth countries. And that still gives us a political say around the world and gives us the prestige and power that we might need. In terms of trade, we've seen the biggest or most important part of that at the moment has been the European Union. Obviously, that's going to change um, in the next weeks and months, and we'll have to see what kind of position we're in afterwards. But the important thing to remember is that the European Union is the UK's biggest trade partner because it encourages trade between its member states, and this has helped all European countries to become rich. We do also do a lot of trade with America and China, so there are other trading organisations out there even after we do leave the European Union. When it comes to international flights, um, from London Heathrow, there's flights to all over the world. It's not like we're a small uh, airport only trying to only fly into certain areas. This is a major international airport that has global links for businesses all around the world. And that's obviously increased tourism, business and the economy. And one of the last things to look at in terms of the place of the UK in the wide world is electronic communication. So the use of the internet in the UK is actually over 90% of people have access to the to the internet whereas average developed countries only have 80%. So even out of the most advanced countries we have some of the best access to the internet in the world. And obviously we know how important that is to industries, how important that is to the economy and actually how much money is to be made off being able to contact people online uh, via emails, research information and hopefully help the UK economy improve. So that is the end of the economic features, futures in the UK. I hope you've learned something from that. Thank you very much. <laughs>